1970s, the age of our disenchantment. The Vietnam War continued. The North burnt. Kennedy and King were dead. The previous decade, with its promises of social revolution, love and peace, lay in shreds about our feet. And people moved. A myriad of personal odysseys took place around the globe, determined by material means, desperation or desire. And these individual pilgrimages had unforeseen consequences for those who undertook them. Unexpected discoveries, new directions, longed-for resolutions, the paths that lie beyond the point of no return. Had its day in the Civil War, too. Was soon laid away, and the names of the heroes I was made to memorize. I first came to Ireland in 1973. I was 24 years old at the time. I came because a friend of mine, Sue Rooney, was um, marrying an Irishman, and I came over to be her bridesmaid. Uh, I just thought there was nothing like Ireland in the world. You know, there was the 40 shades of green. I'm sure everybody feels the same flying into Shannon, touching, touching base in Shannon. And then, too, I came with a, a bunch of friends. We all came over for the wedding, and we were here for a good time. We stayed for six weeks, just touring around. We went from, up, we, the wedding was in Cassowellan, and we went from there all over the south, and just toured and had a wonderful time doing anything and everything. I think I thought that Ireland was something that I'd never seen before. There was something that magical about it, very, very romantic, and everybody was friendly, and life was so easygoing. There was no pressure, there were very few cars on the road, lots of litter. <laughs> I used to say uh, that if there were more people in Ireland, they'd have an awful litter problem. Uh, but it was quiet, and, and yet you f I felt like I was at home. Sharon Lennon, American citizen married to Frankie Lennon of Castle Wellen, now living in Dunboyne with her husband and children.
since I was in university, I had a student deferment. I wasn't eligible for the draft at that stage. Then in 1970, I had finished my course in university, and the uh, U.S. government put in a lottery system, which meant that people were selected to be drafted according to their birthday. Depending on what their birthday was, they were put in uh, order of priorities or order first to be drafted. So in 1970, I received a draft notice. I had decided that I wasn't going. The only decision I w had to make was whether I would go in, I would accept a prison sentence, go to jail, or else leave the country. Bill Warren, American citizen, window cleaner by occupation, now living in the heart of County Offaly with his wife and children. I dropped out of university when I was 19. I didn't think I was getting anything more out of it. I lost interest in studying. After all those years of studying, I just lost interest in everything because of my confusion over, basically, I suppose you could say, just what the purpose of life is. I just didn't know what it was, so I decided I just couldn't carry on in school because I started actually uh, getting close to a nervous breakdown, I think, about school. Because I wanted to do well at whatever I did, I wanted to do well, and I felt like I couldn't put my best into school anymore. So I decided to drop out. And then a few months, about six months after that, I got married to my husband. So I was uh, going on 20 when uh, I got married. And we left, then he left the United States, and I followed him a month later. Patricia Warren, American citizen, married to Bill Warren now living in County Offaly with her husband and children. My mother was born in Stevens Point, Wisconsin, and at 18, she became one of the Washington girls. This was during the war. They, a lot of women left their small country homes and moved, went into Washington to work for the government, and she was one of those women. She just got on the train at 18 and went off to Washington, and she met my father in Washington. He was a sailor. He left home at 16 and joined the Navy to go to war. And they were married in 1946 uh, in Washington and stayed in. My father was in the Navy for about 25 years, 20, 24 years, and we just traveled around. We went from Norfolk to Washington to Bermuda to Tokyo, uh, back to Washington, you know, most, in most of the states, in most of the United States, and 
a few places overseas. He retired in Washington, and at that stage I was university age, so I went off to university in 1966. That's when I started university, and I mean, there were the sit-ins, and it, when uh, the first year I went to university, we were not allowed to wear slacks or trousers. We weren't allowed to wear shorts. We had to wear uh, stockings to the dining hall. We had to wear white gloves on Sunday. I mean, this is 1966. It's not 1936. I mean, it was just incredible. But within one year, we were allowed to wear slacks, we were allowed to wear shorts, and we were allowed to wear runners. So, I mean, that, that whole situation, that whole scene, and the, the absurdity of the whole situation uh, in, the early, in the 1966 just went a complete about-face. So it did. It did affect me in that there was so much happening. It was a, a complete, huge volume of rebellion going on at that stage. And not for rebellion's sake. It was because rules were so ridiculous. You know, imagine white gloves at, uh, at the age of, of 18 and 19, having to wear white gloves for Sunday dinner. You know? I wasn't really what you called a Navy brat. I enjoyed traveling with the service, uh, but I wasn't involved in the military aspects of my father's career. Not like some of the, my friends who were, who had parents uh, in the military, were very much involved into the yes sir, yes ma'am. We never had that in our family. And we were always taught to think of our own views and have our own ideas on things. And I certainly disagreed with the war in Vietnam, and I, I marched, and I did everything that everybody else did. And my parents never interfered in that. You know, I was able to, to have my own views and, and things. My brother, who's a year older, was actually entered the service himself while he was still in university. And that was a bit difficult because he actually served in Vietnam. So we did have that within our family, but... I was allowed to feel the way I wanted to feel about it, and it certainly wasn't anywhere pro-Vietnam. I was born in Chicago. I grew up in a working-class area there, right in the middle of the city. My father was of Irish descent. He was a tradesman. My mother then was an immigrant from West Limerick. And we lived in a, a rather mixed area. There was quite a number of different ethnic backgrounds there, Croatians, Italians, Yugoslavian, and eventually Puerto Ricans and black people in the area. I think it would have been a rather very typical Irish background, Irish upbringing. Yes, we were brought up with the uh, strong church background, as well as that there was this sense of Irishness. All my relatives would gather for weddings, funerals, parties, and celebrations and sing these old type of songs, I'll Take You Home Again, Kathleen. And there was this definitely sense of Irishness and it was always called the old country. Everybody longed and missed the old country, as they called it. Strangely enough, that whole idea put me off Irishness. I made up my mind when I was young that I never wanted to visit Ireland. It's the last place in the world I wanted to come to. Well, perhaps just because young people are rebellious 
and whatever their parents, the values that the parents have, they they see something wrong with them or they find fault with them. But there seemed to be uh, an emotionalism involved with it that I just didn't find very healthy or I didn't find very attractive. My family expected of me to go to university and to marry men with lots of money and, you know, really make it in the world because they were from a very materialistic generation. At that time, it was uh, my parents thought of, you know, having enough money and a really well-off lifestyle is to be the best thing. And they were a very permissive society, giving a lot to their children because they were deprived of things. They were growing up in depression. So they wanted to give their children the best things that they could have. But really it backfired in a way because the children grew up very spoiled and wanting everything easily. You know, like when you got married, you almost got your whole house kitted out for you, like washing machine, dishwasher, uh, big bedrooms, and, you know, all your furniture. So people like... Young people expected an awful lot. I suppose when I got to, when I started going to university, when I was 18, 19, I went through quite a big crisis at that time because, well, I started doing drug, taking drugs and um, mixing with people who were questioning society and plus getting more of an education. I just started wondering, you know, why was I, why was <clears throat> I wanting to do what my parents wanted to do? I wanted to see things differently. I didn't like um, the amount of pressure put on people to have material things. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amens. I could see the emptiness of not having values, knowing uh, which way was right or wrong, really being so uncertain about the future. With the Vietnam War on as well, of course, people are all questioning, like, if, what's the sense of doing anything if you're going to be blown up the next day in, in a war, or why send uh, people off to war when it was such a pointless war? So, oh, Lord, won't you buy me a color TV? I met my husband when I was 17. He lived across the street, directly across the street from me, but he only moved there when I was 16. He didn't live there the whole time, so I didn't grow up knowing him. But after a year, I finally got to meet him. When I was coming home from school one day, he offered me a lift on his motorbike. He had a motorbike. And uh, I was a very shy person, so it, I refused him that day. But he eventually came around and started chat talking to me and chatting with me. And what I liked about him was that he wasn't real pushy towards me because he was a good bit older than I was at that time. I was only 17. He was 23. So I found that, that we just kept getting closer and closer until I had to go away to university. And I thought it was good in a way because um, our relationship was going a bit too fast for me, I suppose, at that time because I was so young. I thought I was so young. So when I went away to university, I did date other people. But my husband used to come down and see me at weekends sometimes. And whenever I was home for holidays, I saw him and pretty much only dated him when I was at home. But because I went to university, I did get a chance to meet other fellows, which I think is a good thing. But I ended up with my husband, marrying him at the age of 19. We've been together ever since. We've been married now 20 years. And I thank God for that. It's interesting why uh, when... I suppose 95 to 98 percent of all draft resistors at this time went to Canada that we chose to go to Sweden. 
First of all, I think that there was something uh, exotic sound, sounding about Sweden, the land of the midnight sun. And as well as that, someone happened to come across my my path who had been to Sweden as a draft resistor, and he told me all about it. And it seemed that the people there were pretty well accepted and fairly well treated. And I saw it also as an option to leave North America and see a different part of the world. We lived in a commune in Sweden for, I think, most of the time that we were there. Definitely we found that there were certain advantages to living in a commune, especially in a foreign country. For instance, it meant you were with people that you could speak to in your own language and that you had similar ideas and backgrounds to. It's also a great, I believe, that living with other people is a great learning experience, mostly learning about yourself, because you might probably know from doing cooking in the kitchen that potatoes cook fastest in a pressure cooker, and things in ourself, when we have to relate with other people on a daily basis, come out that we might have never really known that were there or that were hidden within us. So I found living in a commune to be quite an interesting experience. Overall, it was very enjoyable. But it, it had a number of problems as well because without really sh a shared goal or a shared ideal, it meant that people could, there was no commitment. We decided that maybe we would come to the British Isles and particularly go to, come to Ireland and see what it would be like just to, I wanted to meet my relatives at this stage. I suppose my earlier dislike for anything Irish had changed and I, I probably now thought that maybe it was going to be a paradise here, that it was going to be an idyllic setting. You see, most of the ideas people had of Ireland came from movies like The Quiet Man and all the Bing Crosby and Barry Fitzgerald movies that we had this idea of Ireland as all very poor, all very simple, all the people very happy, still with donkeys and carts and turf fires. So it definitely seemed like perhaps that was the alternative that we were looking for. So we came to Ireland in October of 1973. There again, not really knowing anybody, just coming on an impulse and hoping for the best. As I said, I, was, I came to be a bridesmaid in 1973 for a friend of mine, and the following year, her husband's family came to Washington to visit me, and they said that they knew that this fella from their hometown was playing in a bar in Washington, and we wouldn't it be nice if we could go and visit him and listen to him play? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. So we went off and tried to find this bar. It was called Matt Cain's. And we weren't able to find it when they were there, but we still, we looked later and eventually found it. And I met him, he was playing in a bar in, in Washington. I think I knew, you know, that kind of love at first sight. I think, I think there was a chemistry there from the beginning. I think he felt it and I felt it. You know, I don't, maybe not in terms of marriage, but in terms of a long-term relationship or something, something that could be developed. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. The decision to come to Ireland uh, wasn't really taken very... It, it took a lot of soul-searching and a, a lot of thought, but 
in the end, we decided to try Ireland first for a lot of reasons. Frank was working here. He had a job here. He was teaching. And he was in a group, a musical group. And to him, music uh, was his first love. And I thought that if I took him away from the music and his job and he moved to the States, he'd have to adapt to two things where if in, and also the, the adaptation of moving to, to a foreign country. I, it didn't matter to me whether I gave up my job. I thought I could possibly teach here. And I thought it would be easier for me to make the transition than him at the time. The nation will have learned with horror and with dismay of the dreadful happenings in the centre of Dublin this evening. To condemn and deplore these atrocities, as all right-minded people will, is not enough. The evil-minded men who perpetrated them must be brought to justice. I ask all our people to cooperate in every way with the authorities in having this done. To that purpose, I have asked the Chief Commissioner of the Garda Siakona and the Chief of Staff of the Army to meet me here in Leinster House later tonight. All the available resources of the state will be utilised to protect our citizens and to meet this threat to democracy, which I described only last Wednesday as direct, deliberate and unmistakable. Very shortly, the door will be reconvening to pass the remaining stages of the amendment to the Offences Against the State Act. I hope that this will be done, and to that end, I have suggested that the Shannon might be convened tomorrow as early as possible to enact the bill so that it will be available as another means of bringing evil men to justice. I have asked the citizens to cooperate. They can do so by giving information wherever they can get it to the Garda and to the Army. I would like to ask in particular people who own cars not to leave them in places in the centre of built-up areas, in shopping areas in Dublin and indeed in any of the larger cities. They can, co can cooperate in many other ways. To do so is in their own interests in the interests of maintaining our institutions, in the interests of maintaining our democracy. On behalf of my colleagues in the government, and indeed I'm sure on behalf of all of you who are listening to me, I extend to the families who, of those who were killed, to those who were injured and their families, our deepest sympathy. We must ensure that this evil will be eradicated from amongst us. I remember one day we were walking in Dublin on South King Street and I saw a man there who looked like a reflection of myself. He had long hair and a beard and I just said hello to him, how are you? And he said fine and he was, he was a native Dublin, Dubliner 
And he, we got to talking, and he invited me to come to the uh, little shop that he was running. I don't remember. I think it was a clothing shop, a little clothing store. And his wife was American. That's right. So we sat down, and we got to talking, and we explained our situation to him. And he said, do you know, I know somebody who lives not too far from Dublin out in a place called Enniskerry, and he might, I think you should meet him. He might be just the person that you'd like to get get in contact with. This was a man that he was affectionately known as Smokey Joe Cogan, who lived in a cottage outside of Wicklow. He was married to a German lady, Uta, and they had a couple of children. So we were eventually introduced to them. We went out there, I think, on a Saturday. He invited us to stay the night, and then Sunday afternoon he said, there's a little house here on the on the uh, farm. If you want to do it up, you can do it up and stay here. So we took him up on his invitation, and from there began our first venture into the country. Yes, I was very culture-shocked, actually, when we came to Ireland. It was such a new experience. We started having to wear wellies all the time, which we never, I never grew up wearing. Also, I found a, a big adjustment getting used to living without central heating. I had a lot of problems with uh, chillblains, and I used to get uh, allergies because of not having things, uh, drier conditions to live in. It w- and then we had to learn how to light fires. We never had any experience of lighting fires because middle-class Americans don't have open fires in their house. Only the really well-off people did. So here we were living in a country where everyone had to have fires in their houses. Most people did anyway at that time. Or ranges where they burned solid fuel ranges, things like this. So it was quite a culture shock. But because we were in a commune with a group of people, they helped us make the adjust- adjustments to all these things. We just we had other people all the time around us to tell us how to do things or guide us in uh, how to go about living without things. After living in Enniskerry, we moved then down to East Clare, place not too far from Fico, it's called. This was totally different. One of the main reasons, I think, is that we didn't have a large city within a bus distance. I mean, in Enniskerry, if we wanted to go into the cinema or if we wanted to take spend the day and just soak in the sights and sounds of the city, we could always get on a 44 bus and go into Enniskerry, go into Dublin from Enniskerry and spend the day there. But when we moved to Clare, that was a totally different experience because we lived in a house that was down at the end of a lane. There were no neighbors very close at all, and it was extremely isolated. So this was quite a new experience then as well just to get used to the isolation and the not seeing anybody outside the circle of people that we were with. What I really loved about Clare was the scenery. It was The scenery was fantastic. The people, because it was East Clare, were a little bit harder to get to know, apparently, than they are in West Clare. But yet, once we got to know them, they were very nice to us. But because of the house we lived in, there was a lot of prejudice against us at first. Because our house was known as the hippie house, where all the weirdos went, and because there were so many people coming and going, the local people found it a bit of a threat because they were so unsure of what was actually going on and what exactly actually the consequences of having such a house would be to their locality. So they were quite suspicious of us. But uh, my husband and I were probably some of the first people to live there that were actually married and had a child. So eventually we were able to settle in there. When we left Claire, we made a decision to no longer to live in a commune, but to live in a more traditional family unit. I think the basic reason for this was we found that all of our friends had become a circle of people 
like-minded people thinking the same way, maybe living the same lifestyle. And although we were living in Ireland at the time, our contact with the Irish people, traditional way of life, was pretty limited. So we decided that we would move away from a lot of the areas where most of the immigrants, the English, the German, the Dutch, were living. Most of them were living in the West, Galway, Cork, Kerry. We decided to go to the Midlands and live our, try living our life right in the middle of a rural community there in the Midlands. After look, going to auctioneers and finding out about different houses, we got this house very reasonable at the time, but of course it needed a lot of work with only a cold tap and we had to redo the whole house more or less, replaster all the walls, put in new floors, things like that. So that took time. But I was just glad to have my own house. Belfast first, mainly because Frank had his job there and the group was there. And I'd been to Belfast. I wasn't afraid of the, the troubles there. And I knew a few people there. And I, I thought it would be fine. I thought everything would be okay moving there. But I, uh, I found out quite quickly that it wasn't all that it was. It seemed to be. When you're, when you're visiting a place, you often tend to romanticize it. And you don't have to do the daily shopping. You don't have to uh, worry about bills. You don't have to do things that you do when you're living in a place. And we lived on the Antrim Road, which was a mixed area. And Frank was teaching in Anderson's Town, and he had to travel across all the time. I was very isolated. We were living in a flat. There was absolutely no one around us. And I became very, very lonely and very depressed. I found it a very depressing place to be. And after I became pregnant within four months or so, and we had a baby slightly after, shortly after our first anniversary. And it was then that I decided that I couldn't live in Belfast. I, I thought it wasn't really a place to raise children. We weren't making any progress there. Uh, we were just kind of ticking over, making ends meet. So we started to, to look for alternatives, and I wanted to go back to America at that stage. I really wanted to go back home, and we had no money. I mean, we're, we're talking about two people who spent every penny on phoning each other, writing to each other, or visiting each other in all our courtship days. So we had no money to go back to America, and I said, well, I can't stay in Belfast any longer. I just felt, I, I think people in Belfast that, that live there, grow up there, they're very clannish people, people in, in Belfast, and I didn't feel particularly welcome there. I felt very much an outsider. When we decided then that I couldn't live in Belfast any longer, that I just felt I needed to get away, and especially with the young, a young baby, uh, I didn't feel Belfast was really a place to raise children. When you don't have relatives there, I think you know, home is... is home, if you come from Belfast and you raise a family there, it's different than if you, no one came from there. Frank wasn't from Belfast, I wasn't from Belfast, so I, I just wanted to get out. And he applied for a job in St. Joseph's in Cabra and got it, so we moved to Dublin in 1978. Let us be lovers, we'll marry 
I found it fairly difficult to make good friends, close friends here. Um, I made a lot of acquaintances, but I don't. I think people are very kind of weary of of people that come from other countries in the beginning. You know, this it takes a long time for an Irish person to trust someone from another culture. Uh, that's just my opinion now that, that that happens. But I have made close friends since, but I'm here 15 years now. And I'd say it has taken at least 10 years to make some really close friends. But then I was in the home. I was, I was on my own. I wasn't in, in a job where you might be making pe meeting people with similar interests or um, in a community, doing community work or anything. I was completely taken up with housework and being in the home with young children. So I didn't really have the opportunity to make friends, except for other housewives walking to school or walking to shops or something like that. I found Irish people very friendly uh, to me and my husband on the whole. But because we were quite different looking, being still hippies at that time, people didn't really know what to make of us at first. But on the whole, because we were strangers and foreigners, they were very welcoming. I do believe that Irish people are very hard on their fellow Irishmen. It's very hard to be different in Ireland. It's very hard for people to accept that some other people might have different, want to go away from their traditions or go away from the, the ways their parents taught them to uh, grow up. I think it's much harder for Irish people to be different in Ireland than for foreigners or strangers. We never f have fully integrated into this area. I believe a part of the reason is we don't share many of the things that the local people have in common. Our experience has been, since we don't basically don't drink, we don't go to the pub, that cuts out a lot of the social life. We don't go to church, that cuts out another very main portion of social life. And we don't follow the GAA. So I think that the three, probably the three main points of contact are the church, the GAA, and the pubs. So that has isolated us quite a bit from the community. I would say what I missed most was my family, my mother and father, and that kind of uh, family bond. I, I think I really missed that the most. Because in Ireland, you see so much of it. You know, you see so many people with the extended families or families that nothing is very far in Ireland even if you come from from the country and you're living in the city you still can get to the country in a matter of an hour or two and we were completely isolated Frank and I with that we had no uh, my ch as, it, as in fact my children have no cousins Irish cousins and we were basically on our own with with no relatives and I think you feel that at, at holidays, at Christmas, birthdays, communions, any time you're going to uh, want to celebrate in some small way, other people would be tromping from one house to another visiting this cousin or this relation of some description, and we would stay put, you know. So you felt that, and I think, too, my parents were getting older, and having children myself, it really does make you realize uh, how much your own parents mean to you, and 
I missed them. I, I wanted to spend more time with them. I wanted them to spend time with my children. I do miss more than anything the people and the relationships I've had. But after 20 years, we've grown so far apart that we're not the same people that we were before. So even if we could sit together for an evening and reminisce about old times, our experiences in the last two decades have grown so far apart that that relationship is, could only be superficial. Funny enough, I miss colored people. See very, very few colored people here. Even the last time I was in London getting off in the train station to see so many different ethnic groups, to see the Arabian people and the African people and Chinese people. The same in, in Chicago where I'm from. There's so many different people that sometimes I, I get tired of just seeing Irish people all the time. I love to see black people and Chinese people and there are very few around this part of the country. I do remember the time uh, that I stopped feeling this desperate homesickness. It's when I had been back to the States. I, I went back on my own about six years ago for the summer. And I realized when I had been there, I hadn't been for six years. I hadn't been home for six years. And I realized that what I was missing at home was, wasn't, wasn't there anymore that I still missed my parents, my family, but I had a lot in Ireland too, and I, I wasn't really considering what I had in Ireland. I was more considering what I had left in America. So when I came, when I remember saying to my mother, you can stop worrying about me. I am happy in Ireland. I feel at, at home in Ireland. And I came back, and I did. I felt that that awful feeling of, of missing out on something was gone that I, I felt content with being here. I suppose that the whole movement of the 1960s and the idealism that was there was a deeper struggle for people to try to discover their reason for living. I have found here in Ireland through a series of, not fate, fate not coincidence, that I've discovered a relationship with Jesus Christ in my life. It was eight years ago that the Lord Jesus came into my life and changed me in a way that I couldn't hardly describe to you in words. He has given me peace. He has given me joy in my life. And as I look back, all the things that I have gone through, I feel that they were steps leading me to the point where I could understand and accept the need for a spiritual revival in my own heart, in my life. I think that I'm probably the type of person that so easily distracted that God had to get me into a position of being out here in a very isolated atmosphere, in a very isolated... The location that we live in is very isolated, very quiet, that he could speak to me. Finally, he had to say, Hey, dummy, now you can listen, because all the other voices are turned out. So I definitely feel that life has been very kind to me, and the ex spiritual experience I've had in my life, I wouldn't trade it for anything that America could offer me or anything that any other country can offer me.
I lost both my parents over the past year and a half. My father died a year ago last January, and my mother died very tragically this past April. And I think when you're that distance, that and that feeling of getting on the plane, I think that was the worst feeling of getting on that plane, making that journey by yourself, knowing what was at the end of it. I, I felt that way with my father and my mother's accident, and when she died, she died four weeks after her accident. And, and you're sitting on the plane, you're on your own, and people are coming on that are going for holidays, and you're, you're sitting there, you'd love to talk to somebody, but you don't know how to approach anybody about something like that. And to fly from Dublin to Houston, Texas, takes about 17 hours. So it's a long, long, miserable journey. And I, I felt that distance. I felt every single inch of that distance those last three times I flew. But having said that too, <clears throat> coming back to Ireland after my mother died, that's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to get back to Ireland. I didn't, I felt my ties in America have weakened considerably since they're both gone. And I felt my, my family now is in Ireland. And that's the first time I felt that too. I felt, I always felt torn between the two countries. Uh, I didn't, I felt I should be with my parents and I should give my family the best, my, my own personal family. So I was always, I, I was always in conflict. And now that conflict is resolved in some ways. I don't feel that enormous pull to go back. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.